In the afternoon, I'm sitting in my office, minding my own business, um, and I could hear this giggling going on rather than the normal murmur of, of thought. And I looked up and I looked towards the lad through my doorway and, and there was a duck just standing <laughs> on the threshold, staring at me. Um, uh, of course, the backdrop for me, though, was to see all the rest of the class, all 60 faces, all looking at the duck and me. And by this time, they were in sort of hysterics. Uh, but things got worse, of course, because basically it was my responsibility to extract the duck. From <laughs> Fortunately, we finally managed to remove the duck and he didn't leave any deposits for us to deal with after. No, after so. Clean visitor, of course. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. I'm Jacob Butler from the Department of Educational Outreach Office, and today I'm joined by Richard King. Richard is the Undergraduate Lab Manager here at the Cavendish. He oversees the practical side of the Undergraduate Physics course, managing the team that designs, develops, deploys, lecture demos and undergraduate experiments. A former electronic engineer, his background was in circuit design and computing before he joined the Cavendish in 2008. Today, we'll talk about how Cambridge has changed over the years, what it's like going from fast-paced industry to the sedate world of the university, the processes involved in setting up practical work for hundreds of undergraduates, and what exactly he was doing wandering around Costa Rica with photographs of old airfields last year. Stay with us. So, morning, Richard, and uh, thank you very much for joining us today. That's uh, okay. Nice to be here, Jacob. Excellent. Uh, hopefully we'll have lots of interesting stuff to chat about. So just to start us off, uh, Cambridge is a surprisingly cosmopolitan place and the lab's made up of people from all over the world. But you've come from somewhere a little closer to hand. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in Grantchester? Oh, well, it was fantastic. I mean, um, as you say, you, you bump into people in Cambridge and you, you talk to people and you say, well, where were you from? And I do find myself very much in the minority now of actually saying, well, I was I was born and brought up in, in Cambridge. Um I, I, I popped into the world in uh, Mill Road, Mill Road Maternity Hospital. Um, I drove past there the other day. I'm, I think it's housing now or a posh cafe or something. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, my parents lived in Grantchester. So um, in the 60s, I was a, a little a little blonde chap wandering around terrorising uh, the residents of Grantchester. Um, it was a fantastic place to, to grow up. I, I basically had free reign of, of the meadows and the fields out the back before the motorway was there. Um, and uh, spent my life playing football with mates, tennis, uh, exploring the river. Uh, I learned to punt at a very young age. We had a canoe, <laughs> a canoe as well, a canvas canoe, um, and building tree houses. Uh, Absolutely fantastic time. Uh, I, I'm surprised to this day still that my parents didn't seem to worry about me. Um, you'd head off in the morning on your bike and you wouldn't see them again till later in the day. And as a parent myself now, I'm not sure I would have let my children do that. But uh, yeah, I look back on it with with uh, very happy and, and fond memories. And of course, I attended the, the, the village school in Grantchester then as well, which is closed many years ago. Um, so that was, you know, I very, very much felt um, like a part of the village, the school, the church, um, the friends. And so has your family been uh, based in and around Cambridge for all, throughout all their lives or have they travelled a bit? Or? Uh, so my mum 
yeah, I did a bit of, of family sort of history digging around, and the the king side of of uh, the family, I I traced back to Melbourne, so that's just south of Cambridge, um, in about 1780 or something, uh, where <laughs> my great 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 whatever uh, arrived without any sort of history, um, <laughs> presumably a travelling worker, I think, which is quite common back then. So the king, yes. Forget the king being anything royal. Um, <laughs> uh, it doesn't uh, have any sort of royal connections. I think it just means so maybe in service of the king, which probably meant sort of somebody who did errands or collected taxes or something. <laughs> um, so the king side, we got back to to Melbourne, and um, my my other side of my family, the surname is 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 Reed, which I think is a very Norfolk name or Suffolk name. Um, you can imagine that being to do with agriculture and, and reed collecting and stuff. But in my memory, my my grand my um, the reed side of the family were involved with the railways. Oh, yeah. um, my granddad uh, and his brothers, I think, were pretty all much to do with the railways, and at least all more engine drivers out of Cambridge doing Cambridge Liverpool Street. Um, he was he was in the First World War, got got shot. Um, and then by the time the Second World War, War came along, he, being an engine driver, he was in a protected occupation. Um, but he used to drive ammunition trains and things up to Lord's Bridge and and do the regular run back and forth to Liverpool Street and presumably up, up to Kings Lynn as well. Um, so, yes, the, the family's been pretty, pretty much um, around Cambridge as far as I can tell. But one day I'll, we'll do a bit more digging about that. <laughs> Lovely. You, you mentioned in an earlier chat that your father was very practical. Yeah, what, what was it that he did? Yeah, so he was an aircraft engineer. He unfortunately he passed away very young age of just sixty in nineteen eighty-eight. Um, so, message to everybody here: you know, have grown-up conversations with your parents because <laughs> um, you know I miss having had an opp- opportunity to really go back and talk to him when I was sort of mature enough to realise that it was actually quite an interesting thing. To know his past, um, so he he went. Um, he did his national service in the RAF just after the war, uh, and then he did some apprentice. That's right, he did an apprenticeship with Short Brothers. He was down in Southampton for a while, working on the big um, flying boats and learning oh, wow. his learning his, his manual skills and and how to rivet and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. There's a lot of rivets in a in a flying boat. Um, but he ended up, and this is where it all gets a bit patchy. He he ended up working for a company called Fison's uh, or Airwork, I think they were called, and they have been quite well documented. They were a, I think they were a sort of a company that you could go to if you needed aerial support. So be it lifting stuff or or carrying materials or in his case the 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 company he worked Fison's Air work their job was crop spraying um so this is the late 1950s and I and I think he his particular area was was helicopters so he he got into how you used helicopters to spray crops um and I know that he was out in sort of central and south america supporting uh, a fleet of well, 
a fleet, maybe three or four, I don't know what the numbers were, of, of helicopters that were based out there for this company, Airwork. And and he was sort of the regional engineer out there who had to to make sure these aircraft were still serviceable and, and fix them. So so he, he, he had a fantastic ability to mend anything, um, which is a kid. <laughs> I found fascinating and, and I'd spend many hours sitting in the garden shed with him on a cold evening while he was mending something, just sort of watching the uh, the, the the ability he'd got to, to do that. And I guess he learned that because when you were stuck in the middle of the jungles of Costa Rica and you've got a broken helicopter and uh, you know, not a lot to fix it, <laughs> to do it in a safe way, which he obviously did, it's quite a, quite a skill. Um so yeah, it was he was he was a wonderful chap, and uh, I learned a lot from him, which is probably probably why I I sort of deep down enjoy fixing stuff, you know, whenever yeah. I get a chance. I can't bear to throw things away. That <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's more on the electronic side. Um, my mechanics, I you know, I can I can do stuff, but it's it's uh, I'm happier with a soldering iron than a than a, than a torque wrench. Let's put it that way. Um, mm probably more useful in the physics department when you're well, uh, tidying right. up after students yeah yeah <laughs> but we did uh i i did had a little adventure you mentioned costa rica earlier on um i i tried to put his history together um there's been been something i've been doing for a, a year or two um he he basically took a load of photos when he was was out in central america um and they were slides rather not photos we discovered them in my mum's loft a few years ago and and I went through them and I actually remembered seeing them as a kid. I, I do remember him doing slideshows. Um, there's a thing of the past. Uh, and uh, But they were all deteriorating. A tip for anybody, if you've got old Kodak ectochrome slides and Kodachrome slides, they do go very brown. So these are all like, like 1958, 59, 60 or something. Well, I went through them a couple of years ago and digitised them all which was a very sensible thing to do because they do deteriorate so quickly. Uh, and I got quite sort of captivated with trying to find out where all these places were because, bless him, he didn't really write anything down about where these photos were. There was him standing next to a volcano or a picture <laughs> of a cathedral and stuff. So over several months, I had a quite a fun time going through all these photos. And it's absolutely amazing what you can do with Google, um, Google Street View and Google Lens. I mean, I'm sure everybody's used it, but, you know, there's a picture of a cathedral, a very faded orange picture of a cathedral, and let Google Lens do its stuff. And, and it will come back and tell you, oh, yeah, that's the cathedral in San Jose or something. So I stitched together a list of places that he'd been um, out there. I spent some time in Jamaica um, he'd spent a lot of, lot of time in, in Costa Rica um, and Panama, but most of the most of the photos were Costa Rica. So I'd set myself a target to try and identify those. A year or so back, my son had a, um, a time off work because he'd been working flat out since he left um, left home, finished uni, and he went on a little backpacking tour around Mexico, which was slightly outside of his sort of normal comfort zone, I suppose. You know, six weeks using local buses and stuff. It's quite an adventure. And he really enjoyed it and had a wonderful time. And and I sort of, when he got back, I said to him, right, so you can take me to Costa Rica now then as my guide. <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, uh, which was absolutely wonderful. So this uh, this March, this this year, March, we, we set off um, on a little adventure to try and really trace my dad's footsteps. Um, 
And yes, as you say, it, it involved me spending a lot of time running around towns and places in Costa Rica with with printed out pictures, sort of accosting locals, trying to find out whether they knew this particular building. Um, but we had a wonderful time. We hired a four by four. We went to San Jose. We went to the um, the volcano Irazu, which turned out to be where my dad had been. Um, that was an experience, you know, going up 11,000, 12,000 feet, mostly in the four by four, but just walking a little bit at the top and experiencing what it's like to have 40% less oxygen than you do at sea level. Um, no wonder I was puffed out. Uh, yeah, so we went round to We did a tour of central and southern Costa Rica um, and ended up in a place called Palmasur, which is right down south. And that's where it turns out dad was based quite a lot of the time. So we found this old airfield, which is still a, which is still in use as a sort of a regional airfield. I think one flight a day. And uh, yeah, it, it basically was me rummaging through the, the the undergrowth, sort of finding an old hangar and taking photos of it and getting all very excited about this and the locals wondering who on earth this bloke was. Um, it, it People will understand, I'm sure, but you know, when you can sort of put together your, your parents' history like that, it's, it's quite good fun. Um, the other funny thing we did was we ended up back in um, San Jose and uh, we couldn't find one particular building we just could not find that there'd been a photo of. And we, we were in roughly the right area. Um, and we, we basically found a fruit cellar by the side of the road. And we, we, in very broken Spanish and lots of arm waving, we sort of managed to get him to understand that we were trying to understand where was this building that we'd got this photo of? And much to our surprise, he recognised it. Um, he'd clearly been standing on the same corner for about 30 years selling mangoes. And, uh, and he got quite excited to explain that it was actually the building dead opposite that had become a Toys R Us, having formerly been the Hotel Royal Dutch, which is where, which is where my dad had been staying. So we had a very, very wonderful time and, and did manage to stitch together a lot of, a lot of his past. Lovely. Now, before you came to the Cavendish, you worked on circuit design. Can you tell us a bit more about what you got up to uh, here when you were working electronics and working for Acorn back in the day? Yeah, I mean that was that was an interesting and I look time and I look back on that as as something quite special. Um, some of the older listeners will remember a company called Acorn Computers. <clears throat> they uh, they were formed in the late seventies, and uh, their their sort of biggest claim to fame at the time was was to get the contract for the BBC microcomputer. And they were on the lookout for new engineers and my tutor at college sort of put my name their way. And I ended up working there and started in 1983 as a junior engineer. And the company was just growing rapidly. It was huge. There was new buildings going up. And I was based at Forborn Road. Um, and I started really doing sort of technician type work of, of testing and soldering stuff up. Then I managed to get my way into a, a newly formed group called the VLSI group, very large scale integration. So they were a chip design group. The, the head of Acorn, um, Herman Hauser, had, had seen how important it was to get your own in-house design team and particularly looking at integrated circuits. Um, so I, I spent a couple of years in that team. My, my job was doing um, what were called gate arrays at the time. So this is where you had a you had a chip that was sort of predefined with some of its structures, but you had to define the final metal layers in order to join everything up. I was essentially doing um, chip design to simplify and mop up and make cost reductions on the existing circuitry. Um, 
And the first the first product I contributed to big time was a thing called the Master 128, which was which was sort of like the ultimate evolution of an 8-bit micro, I suppose. Um, it couldn't go much further than that, but I I helped design some of the chips that were in that. Um, and then at the same time, there was a very exciting development going on with the within the AR&D team at Acorn. They were working on uh, a, a risk processor, a reduced instruction set processor. Uh, and this basically was going on in the team around me. I wasn't directly involved in it, but um, the guys basically were designing what, what we now know as the ARM chip, mm. which has gone on to, you know, pretty much... Uh, um, revolutionize the world, I think it's fair to say, in terms of its application for high-speed, low-power devices and mobile phones and and tablets, etc. <clears throat> so I was sort of seeing this going on at the time, and, and I think everybody realized it was quite special. Um, my, my job then, I, I got to work uh, with the guys in AR&D to essentially turn the ARM, the first ARM chips, into a product. So I was one of the engineers working on a series of computers called the Archimedes series, which was basically, a, you know, a 32-bit RISC microprocessor-driven computer, um, which was absolute, you know, fantastic high-speed machine. And we developed our own operating system to run it. Um, I think one of the problems with Acorn was that we were miles ahead of, of the time with technology, and it was actually quite difficult sometimes to get sales out of that. Um, mm. We were very much selling into sort of education in the UK and to a certain extent business. Uh, but of course, the world was going PC. Um, PC clones were appearing everywhere. Microsoft were dominant. And gradually over the next few years, it, it sort of got harder and harder. And we tried to move our focus away from educational computers. Um, Arm famously spun out of Acorn in order to sort of um, have a free reign, really, to pursue marketing the Arm chip which obviously they did in a fantastically successful way. Um, the, the rest of Acorn had various attempts at, at trying to get into specific markets, um, things like online media. Um, we did some in, internet terminals. My particular group that I ended up working for, we designed a, a little internet card that went inside a television. Um, this is before, of course, you could get access to the web on mobile phones and, and devices like that. We wanted to try and get web access to the, the masses, as it were, by, by building into TVs. That was quite successful. Um, but gradually, you know, the writing was on the wall. I think the company was finding it difficult to, to carry on. Um, we were trying to do consultancy. We were trying to sell sort of designs for embedded ARM systems. It was always a problem getting people to use the operating system we'd got. And Windows wasn't available on the ARM back then. So eventually, um, Acorn sort of, uh, finished up. I suppose we various divisions were sold off. The bit I worked for went to a company called Pace Microtechnology. And I think it was 1999. Um, Pace were the big developer and retailer of set-top boxes for digital TV. And some of our products were very, you know, um, um, ideal is the better word. But they were ideal for sort of digital TV applications. So Pace bought the section I was in then. To, to make some digital TV products. Um, but a couple of years later, I think they started to struggle as well because the market changed. And instead of people buying set-top boxes, um, the, the model changed and essentially the people like Sky and Virgin started giving them away. <laughs> so I think Pace's business model changed and come sort of 2001, 2002, 
they they shut down the Cambridge office. Did you move on from that in the end? Well, I did. A, I, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I, I, I enjoyed my time at Acorn, but in the latter days, um, I'd moved into a point of sort of project management and engineering management, and there was an awful lot of technical sales support. And I didn't enjoy that. Um, salespeople love to make promises for things that actually invented yet. <laughs> and, um, you know, many a time myself and my colleagues would have to go and stand up and sort of give a presentation on how we could do something when deep down we knew we we probably couldn't. Uh, or at least it would take three times longer and cost three times as much. So I was a bit outside my comfort zone in the latter years there. So I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go straight back into technology again when I left. Um, I wanted to do something different, but I wasn't sure what. So I started just sort of doing bits and bobs, bits of, of technology sort of consultancy, but also helping people out with jobs. And um, <laughs> there was a dear old lady who lived across the road from us, and uh, I'd pop around there and I'd mend stuff and I'd cut the grass and I'd make a little patio, do some decorating. And, and of course, this, this lady, Ruth, she was so well-connected with other old ladies around town. <laughs> I ended up getting all these letters, not phone calls, of course, letters. <laughs> Dear Mr. King, you know, Ruth has said how wonderful you are at doing X, Y, Z. And, and before I knew it, I'd got about like 15 of these little old ladies that all wanted me to go and do sort of DIY for them. So so actually I sort of wandered into to, to sort of two years of doing that sort of thing, which was which was great fun. And you get to meet some interesting people. Um but there was something missing. I wasn't part of something. I think I am somebody who likes to be part of something. Uh, and I guess I'd sort of realised that this this wasn't where I wanted to go. It wasn't very, I wasn't making enough money out of it. And of course, it doesn't really pay into a pension either. So come 2008, um, I, I stumbled across an advert for the Cavendish, basically, who were uh, looking at uh, uh, getting a laboratory technician in to help in teaching. Um, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a go at that. Um, so I, I came for an interview and uh, I was, uh, the biggest problem I had probably was persuading them to take me on given that I was rather overqualified, but I think it came across that my, what I, you know, my motives were, were, were good. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that, that they took me on back then. Oh, yeah. And so what were you doing when you first started here? Uh, so I was basically running, I took over running the Part 1A lab. Um, that was the vacancy they had. Um, so it needed a lot of improvement. It needed sort of some attention. I'm talking not about the physics. I'm talking about the actual running of the lab and the equipment. So, you know, I spent a very happy year or so getting used to the routine, getting used to the, the, the experiments that we needed checking everything trying to get stuff working again um and and knuckling down and, and enjoying that um but you know making myself available to help elsewhere as well because obviously i've got a good experience base with other bits and bobs and i was quite capable of doing a little bit of management of projects and things when things needed to change so yeah initially i was i was just basically getting on in in the first year lab 
And it's the sort of opposite route to most academics, where they go from working in academia to then into industry. So I was wondering for you, as someone who's gone the other direction, coming from sort of high level industry job into working at the university, what the sort of main differences were and what uh, what you felt the contrasting aspects of it were? Well, I mean, everybody jokes about the slow pace of change at Cambridge, don't they? And, and it, it's absolutely true. It's incredibly frustrating at how long things can take to happen. On the other hand, uh, it is what it is. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a super tanker, isn't it? And you don't, <laughs> you don't turn it round, and nor should you. Uh, and I guess I had to learn to accept that things couldn't happen uh, in a day, uh, a week, or a month <laughs> even. Um, and accept the fact that uh, it was actually one of its strengths as well, the consistency. Um, it's... It's knowing which bits you really feel passionate that need changing and mm. sort of nibbling away at those. Um, and the, and I guess linked into that is is I'd never heard of a committee before I came here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, everything sort of struck me as being committee decided, um, whereas I was used to being in a, a structure of management where I would put stuff up to my boss that I couldn't decide and the decision would come back down or I would be empowered to decide stuff. Um, the old mantra about pick somebody to to do the job and leave them to get on with it. And, and that included the responsibility to make decisions. So I guess I was a bit disappointed that, that things didn't work like that. But you sort of accept it and you you, you grow to get used to it. <laughs> yeah different set of skills and different framework and I think I'm on five different committees for various different levels of things as well it's very much yep. how Cambridge does stuff isn't it yeah and so how about nowadays what, what are you getting up to uh, on day-to-day basis now yeah so I mean I'm glad to say I still look after the first year lab and I, I like that it it runs very very smoothly um got a wonderful team in there with with uh, Julia and Dave uh running the show and, and the demonstrators and then Chris Braithwaite has, has been renewing some of the experiments so there's always something interesting in there and I like that sort of contact with the staff and the students and because it's a pretty smooth operation now it doesn't take me all day um, <laughs> I, I get in there in the mornings I set stuff up uh, the afternoons then when the actual labs are running I've got a bit of time to support the students and the staff if equipment fails but also to to do other things um we've also got two other labs we've got the second year lab which which mark and and john my colleagues in there mostly look after we've got the third year labs which we share between us in terms of looking after those and we've also got a full um lecture program which um john in particular supports by going back and forth to town with with car loads van loads of, and bicycle loads of equipment <laughs> and, and the handouts um, and then there's a wonderful teaching office with with Helen and now Rachel uh, running that um, fantastic operation and and you know I help I help now and then in there as well when when we have maybe when we have new systems coming in things like lecture recording and panopto and stuff was something that I got stuck into in order to really sort of assimilate what that was about uh, and now Helen and, and Rachel look after that. Um, I've got some budgetary responsibility. Um, we've got grant money that we've been spending. So it's a it's a nice mixed job of of doing doing the day to day stuff in one A, um, supporting my colleagues, um, looking to the future with things. It, it's lovely to be involved when they the, the academics do come up with a new experiment idea, and and I can get in and 
give them a bit of a, a benefit of my experience on scalability and what might work, what might not work, what might get broken. <laughs> and and indeed, you know, actually sort of help sometimes with the design and development or building the equipment or, or managing project, managing that that process through. Um, so it's it's a nice mixture. Yeah. And so sort of interfacing with the academic side of the university, I suppose, comes mainly through that, does it? Through the sort of development of new practicals and uh, and how the course uh, oh, sorry, the practical side of the course is is produced. That's right. That's right. And you know, we've we've got a an ever sort of fairly much an ever changing number of academics that, that get involved with the the classes. Um, we've got some senior people who are, are still very much involved, giving the benefit of of their wisdom and knowledge. And um, but a new generation that have been coming through in recent years, and it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know to some of the the new people. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, just to, to really do what I can to support them to make the labs better. Um, it, it isn't a lot of fun for the students sometimes. They're under a lot of pressure, particularly in the first few weeks of term. And we've got an awful lot coming through. I mean, people don't, people don't perhaps realise. I think we've probably got about 600 students that will be coming to do practicals here um, in 1A, 1B and the part twos. So, uh, yeah, we're just, we're all part of a team. We're all trying to do our best to give those people the best possible e learning experience they can. We don't want them getting stressed out because equipment's broken or not working or information's been lost. And, you know, uh, academic teams are all working very hard to try and keep those experiments interesting and and sufficiently demanding and taxing without overstressing them all. So, um, yeah, yeah. And has it changed much over the last 15 years, you know, both, the, both in terms of how the practicals work and how you sort of interface with the academics? So, well, not really. I mean, we, you know, back to that thing again, again, about the university not changing. Um, it's evolved slightly um, rather than big time change. Um, the practical, the practicals themselves have definitely been improved. We've got new equipment. We've got new experiments going through. And we've changed the way we mark things in the first year to take the pressure off the students a bit so that um, we do the thing called standard credit now. And we changed the first experiment of the year to be a, a fun circus where mm. the students all sort of get to play with demos and equipment and it's not really marked. Um, so that it's much more of an introductory session for them. And that's something that Chris Braithwaite and, and Julia and Dave have, have done. So in terms of the wider department, I think communications is probably the biggest thing I'd say has improved. Um, we've got the communications team in now, and obviously you're you're doing your bit here. Um, <laughs> but even just the little weekly newsletter we get around, uh, that really didn't happen in the, before. And I think that's so important, particularly in the absence of uh, sort of like the common room. I think everybody feels that, that we've lost something with the common room going, and I understand fully why that happened. It, uh, you know, we, we were going to have to move forward with radar we sent coming along and things got delayed there. But I think without that focus of the common room, the communications channels are even more important. Um, now, uh, I've uh, obviously interacted with students a bit with some of the stuff we do, and I know they're a strange lot. Uh, in that 15 years, have uh, anything particularly odd happened in the undergraduate labs? Anything sort of quirky stories? Well, I suppose there's a couple of things that you, you have to look at. Um, uh, there was our famous um, incident with the overhead rails. Um, I didn't actually <laughs> witness this, but um, 
it has rather gone down in history. So you, you'll remember, you'll you'll remember how the power is laid out in the 1A lab with uh, overhead electrical rails, which are about what sort of 10 feet off the ground, I suppose. Mm. Um, well, the story goes that one of our very um, uh, inventive uh, students decided to explore these rails <laughs> using a uh, extendable metal tape measure. Um, and uh, halfway through the class, sure enough, he, he managed to get the tape measure in just the right spot. And there was a very loud bang and a flash and, and all the power went off as he uh, <laughs> took out the circuit breaker. Um, I'd love to have been there to see the look on his face. Uh, but uh, I mean, it, it sounds incredibly um, stupid thing to do. But then, of course, there was a famous scientist, wasn't there, called Franklin, who decided to fly a, a kite in an electric storm. So uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe the guy was just just, just a real diehard experimentalist. Indeed. City on the shoulders of giants, to quote yeah. another Cantabrian. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he was had, okay, was he? In the uh... he was okay, I, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> um, we also had a visit from a duck last year, which was rather funny. Um, as we, as people will know, we back onto the the pond area, and in the summer we leave the far door open. And in the afternoon, I'm sitting in my office, minding my own business, and my office opens onto the side of the lab, so I've got this view into the lab through through a double doorway. And I could hear this giggling going on rather than the normal murmur of, of thought. And uh, and the giggling was getting louder and louder and louder. And then start, start, people started laughing. And and I looked up and I looked towards the lab through my doorway and, and there was a duck just standing <laughs> on the threshold, staring at me. Um, uh, of course, the backdrop for me, though, was to see all the rest of the class, all 60 faces, all looking at the duck and me. And by this time, they were in sort of hysterics. Uh, but things got worse, of course, because basically it was my responsibility to extract the duck from the lab. <laughs> so um, there's me chasing chasing around with a with a um, a towel, uh, you know, pursuing this duck around all the benches and the window frames with feathers going everywhere, whilst all the students enjoyed the sort of the, the show. Uh, fortunately, we finally managed to remove the duck, and he didn't leave any deposits for us to deal with after. Oh, lovely. after so. well, a clean visitor, of course. Yes. <laughs> now, we're in the process of uh, packing up and moving over to the Ray Dolby Centre at the moment. So how are you feeling about leaving these lamps behind? It's done us good service. I mean, poor old Alan and the maintenance team might, might be thinking differently, but... Um, <laughs> You know, they've kept it going and uh, it's been a very flexible building for us. I can see even in the shortish time I've been here that uh, things have moved around a lot. Doorways have been blocked up, other doors opened, um, things changed. It, it's been a living building, clearly. Um, I shan't miss all the spiders' webs and, and grubbiness <laughs> up the corners. And that's that's not meaning any disrespect for the cleaning team because, I mean, it's just a horrible building to have to deal with. And the metal window frames, I mean, my... My office, I, I'm so grateful that, that uh, I've got a sort of a warm, cosy office with uh, Helen and Rachel to go into because my prep room is just all metal windows and they leak like a sieve and it's freezing in there in the winter. And it's pretty cold in the main lab as well, despite Alan's efforts to keep the boiler stoked and on. You know, we sometimes down to 15 or 16 in, in the 1A lab. So there's certain aspects of this building I, I will not miss. And... Uh, and also, I think, um, you know, it's always exciting moving buildings. It, it happened to me several times in, in Acorn. Um, and it does actually refresh things. It refreshes your approach to work, I think. And uh, it'll be lovely to get into the new place.
I I was involved sort of early on um, when when the architects started to um, come on board and uh, Professor John Richard, our head of teaching at the time, uh, got the task of trying to define what areas we needed in, in teaching and, and he came along to me and we put lots of documentation together and, and put lots of requests in and I'm really pleased that the, the architects managed to achieve their aims from our side of things. So it, it's personally it's been really interesting to see the building develop and uh, you know I've been out there with my camera and I've managed to get in a few times to to actually look around and uh, so yeah, I mean, very, very excited, but um, yeah, some sadness about leaving here, particularly, I suppose, the in the summer, being able to wander out into the grass and enjoy the area around the pond is is, is quite special. Indeed, and it's good to hear that you're, uh, you're sort of taking into account with the designs of the new labs as well. Now, just to finish off, we've uh, had a few sports people on the podcast already. I know that you've been heavily involved in some of the Cavendish's sporting activities. Could you tell us a bit about what sort of things have gone on here and what sort of things you've been involved in? Um, yeah, I, I I sort of got heard just after I joined. I heard that there was a cricket team here, and um, I'm not a cricketer, but I like a bit of sport. <laughs> and cricket is a bit of a quirky English British thing, isn't it? That uh, I mean, it's a global sport now, but uh, you know, it's sort of quite associated with the English village, isn't it? So <laughs> back to my Grantchester roots and uh, stuff. I I fancied playing a bit of cricket, and uh, so I went along and had a few games. And then uh, the end of the season, uh, Justin Palfreyman appeared in my office with all the cricket kit, saying, "Right, over to you then." <laughs> uh, you, he said, "You're, you know, you seem like a sensible chap. I'm finished. I'm, I'm leaving now. You know, you can run the cricket team." So, so I, I sort of went from from just sort of jobbing player to to actually sort of taking on the role of secretary of the team. Um, and I, yeah, I ran it for seven or eight years, I suppose. And we play in a, a local league um, with other departments. It's not serious. It's good fun. But of course, everybody's slightly competitive. And <laughs> um, yeah, we're playing every week during the summer and playing against some other sort of um, spontaneous teams that are set up for friendlies and things. Met some wonderful people. Um, we've had some lovely fellas and, and lasses and girls playing cricket as well. And uh, it's been a great time. But I packed it in, what, last year? I, After doing it for six or seven years, organising, I really just wanted to play. Um, so I, I sort of held up my hands and said, somebody else needs to take it on. And a couple of players took it on last, last year. Unfortunately, I seem to remember being injured and having COVID and didn't actually get to play very much. Um, so cricket really is on the back burner at the Cavendish at the moment. And I'd like to put out an appeal. If anybody out there is keen to to basically um, get the team running again. We'd, we'd really welcome it. We've got some money. We've got a list of players. We've got contacts for opposition. We've got a kit. Um, we'd just like somebody or some bodies, a couple of people to come and, you know, start arranging fixtures and getting people together again. Um, it would be a wonderful thing to do. Um, I've also done quite a bit of running. That also comes and goes with injuries. Um, and there's, there's always people here that are interested in going out for running. And it's been nice recently to go out with with Rachel, who's joining the teaching office here, and, and also Richard Ordish, who's down in IT. A lot of people will know Richard. And um, so we've done some running at lunchtime. And I know other people do that as well. Um, and cycling is the other thing I've been doing a lot of, not 
not so much with with work colleagues obviously although Richard and me did a fantastic cycle ride around Rutland Water a few weeks ago um, but I've really discovered cycling since Covid I think I, I started going out on my bike for for leisure then and um, it's become my principal method of transport now and there's nothing I like more than planning a nice sort of Sunday cycle ride out around the villages and things. Well, there we go. So if anyone's at the lab or soon to be at the lab and fancies taking over the cricket team, we've got uh, what sounds like a very well-oiled machine just uh, just waiting for someone to start directing it. So, uh, well, thanks for your time today, Richard. It's been very interesting chatting to you about what sort of things uh, you've been up to over the years and here at the lab. As always, if you want to learn more about our work at the Cavendish Laboratory, then please go to our website at www.phy.cam.ac.uk. And if you have any questions, tag us on social media with hashtag people doing physics. Uh, as always, this episode was recorded and edited by Chris Brock. Thank you for listening to People Doing Physics, and we'll see you next month. <laughs>